Welcome, everybody, to Elmtown Episode 7. Today, we'll be talking with Chris Jenkins. And our sponsors for this week are Asteris, which is an Elm and DevOps consultancy based in St. Louis. They do training, custom development, integration, and deployment for your front and your backend apps. Not just for anyone's, but for yours. If you're stuck on where to go next with your Elm application or just need a hand getting started, go ahead and contact Brian Hicks, who's been on the show many times before. We love Brian. Contact him at brian at aster.is. In other words, Aster is to get started. Uh, next, we have HumbleSpark, and Luke is from HumbleSpark. He's going to be on the show with us today. HumbleSpark's a development consultancy based in Chicago, and it specializes in web and front-end work. They provide practical experience and expertise in front-end development using modern tools, frameworks, and languages, including Elm and React. They also support the Elm community through investing time in open-source contributions, screencasts, and other learning materials. And I can testify that Luke spends a lot of time and gives, gives us a lot of good stuff. So we're really grateful to them, not just for sponsoring, but for working, too. Then there's the company that I work for, Day One, which sponsors the production of the podcast. Um, big thanks to them. Uh, we make a journaling app that is currently on iOS and on Mac and coming soon to web and hopefully other platforms, too. Uh, there's an Android beta. We're working on making the journaling experience one that everyone will want to do because it makes sense. It's well-tooled and it's beautiful. And last but not least, we have Daily Drip, which is a wonderful training service that makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. As you already know, it takes a lot of time to find good resources to learn. When I go looking to learn new things, a lot of the time I spend is realizing that links are outdated or videos are old, recorded before, and things like that. Uh, and and I, want, I want new stuff. I want stuff that's current to me right now. Well, Daily Drip, they've already spent the time to make sure that the stuff they're going to offer you is relevant. And once you sign up, you pick your topic. Some of the prevalent topics are Elm, uh, Elixir, CSS, and HTML. And every weekday... After you subscribe, you'll get a short video or reading delivered to your inbox. Uh, and these, when I say short, they're short enough that they only take you about five minutes to consume. That's a good short amount of time for a valuable piece of learning every weekday. And we have a special coupon code just for you Elmtown listeners. If you sign up, please use the coupon code Elmtown and you'll save $9 on your first month, which is enough credit for you to try out the Elm topic for a month for free. And when you sign up, don't forget to use the coupon code because that's going to show support for the podcast and help us to, to be able to continue to be supported uh, in the future. It, learning is a daily occurrence, and Daily Drip really can help with that. I just recently watched a video on web components, and I caught the vision using custom web elements with Elm, and that has drastically changed my work over the last week. In fact, maybe I'll mention that in the catch-up section in a minute. But first, let's do some introductions. Chris, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, hi, I'm Chris. Um, I'm a developer over in London, freelance. Uh, what do I do? I have been doing a lot of work for Internet of Things companies recently, building out um, Elm front-end for them, which is quite fun. Oh, that's really cool. So you're just contracting right now. You're not with any particular firm. Yeah, yeah, and to my surprise, there's um, enough Elm contract work to keep me more than busy, which is quite That's exciting. awesome. That's way cool. Yeah. We're going to ask yeah, you I more about that. Go ahead. No, no, please do. I was about to say we're going to ask you more about that in the catch-up section, but we are already done with introductions. Luke's here. You know Luke. Luke's been on the show many times before. Want to say hi, Luke? Hi, everyone. And you know me because I'm on every stinking show. And uh, so let's move on to catch-up. And so, Chris, why don't you tell us, if you can, uh, a little bit about some of the problems you've been trying to solve lately or the projects you've been working on? 
Um, well, some of them are confidential. So what can I tell you about? I'll tell you about the thing I'm doing at the moment, which is quite fun, which is um, I run a monthly hack night over in London here. And every Christmas we have a Christmas special. Right? So I'm trying to put together the server for our Christmas special. And this is going to be a mixture of Elm on the front end, uh, visualizing a real-time game, and a Cloud Haskell back end, which all the different hackers in the room need to connect to. That sounds pretty awesome. Is it just going to be a JSON API? For um, yeah, it's JSON over WebSockets. You connect to WebSocket and send objects and get objects back. Um, Very cool. And the, the point of the evening is what clever things can you hack together in 90 minutes? And the point of this evening will be can you build a control intelligent to run the game for you? That sounds awesome. How many people do you have attending that hack night regularly? Usually about 20 or 30. Wow, and, that's uh, a good number. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad, because uh, we do all languages, so that gives a nice, diverse mix. Yeah. Um, that's how I originally heard of Elm, actually. I've been running it for about three or four years, and um, on one of these nights, the team decided to try Elm, and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. At the hack night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I think that night I got stuck on a JavaScript team, and... Um, <laughs> there was an Elm team completely randomly. And they seemed to get a lot further than we did, like not really knowing Elm. So I thought checking out that two, two three years ago. Well, that's exciting. Any uh, any particular thoughts you've been having recently? I, I don't want to ask you to reveal confidential data, but just interesting stuff you've been kind of working on with, with Elm particularly. Um, uh, I suppose... I suppose the reason I'm getting a lot of work is I'm meeting a number of startups who are doing something like Angular and it's not working so well for them. Or, you know, they're just, they're finding that things take a lot longer than they expected and aren't nearly as reliable as they expect. And that's why they seek out random alternatives and that's how Elm comes into the picture. So do you find, Chris, that it's hard for you to sell Elm to them as a, a technology to use, or are they just kind of like, oh, great, awesome, you know what you do? Uh, this mix. Some have already sold themselves on Elm. Okay. Um, and the others generally don't mind as long as they've got a good reason to believe it's going to be an improvement. Very They cool. don't want an incremental improvement. You know, there's a, the sale is, if you try this, give it a go, and it's going to be so much better that you actually get going again. Because a lot of companies yeah. I see that are uh, kind of blocked on the front end. Okay. No, um, I've, I've done this with a couple of companies now where the back end is almost ready to launch and the front end is just not coming up to their expectations. And do they, do, do they not have uh, dedicated front-end engineers um, or do they do have front-end engineers and do you meet resistance with them when you try to teach them Elm for the first time? Um, I certainly don't meet resistance. Um, curiosity weirdness, um, it, it seems like a very alien world. But the main thing I find is, if I'm honest, by the time they contact me, maybe things have started to break down a bit with the management and the front-end team. Okay. Because things aren't going as well as they'd hoped. So is your consultancy, your private Chris consultancy, called like Chris to the rescue? Chris will save you. <laughs> I was, I was thinking of pivoting into Jenkins just so I could do the uh, have your Jenkins build fixed by a Jenkins. 
<laughs> oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. I love it. But, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that, that uh, at your companies, maybe you were a curse word because your last name was Jenkins. So, You know, I've actively avoided using Jenkins just because it's more confusion than I need. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great. Okay, so hey, Luke, do you want to give us a little catch-up on what you've been doing? Sure. Um, so I've been doing a lot of uh, back-end stuff recently, working on a, a secret Elm project. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't want to like diminish the the release or anything. But it involves downloading all of the Elm packages. I'll just say I know what the secret is, and I'm pretty excited for it. Yes, Hi. oh, that's right. I did tell you. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I downloaded all the Elm packages, and I've been learning some fun statistics about that that maybe I can share later on. And uh, in the process of doing the front end for this, I've been using remote data all over the place. So that's fun. Um, Boy, so have I. I wish yeah. we could talk to somebody about that. Yeah, me too. Learn more about it. Gosh. Hmm. Uh, what else? Oh, we have the Chicago Hack Night for December coming up. The Chicago Elm Hack Night. Code Night. We don't call it Hack Night. We call it Code Night. And Evan's going to be there. Evan's in Chicago right now. So that's cool. Very nice. Yeah. Well, Great. I'll give you a little catch-up from me, too. I'll tell you the thing I was hacking on just this morning. So I've, got, I've had a little side project for a while, and I've been trying to learn Haskell for a couple of years and haven't really succeeded uh, because there's a lot of confusion that I'm trying to clear up that Elm typically clears up for me. So I'll either have to learn from Chris's great skills or maybe I can go ahead with what I was doing this morning, which was experimenting with running Elm as my server code. So I haven't gotten very far with this, but the idea was I was just going to run Elm headless using platform.program, which Luke mentioned a little bit earlier, which means you don't have to include a view. And it basically just make a node app with Express that has one endpoint that accepts a request and then just pass in the request object to the headless Elm. And inside of Elm, I could do all my routing and all of my type checking and all of my making sure that the data coming in meets, I just pass in basically json.value values. Uh, and then I can do my decoding in there, pass back errors, and then all the, the communication I need to do with the database can come through ports. So I've only made it through the very beginning of this idea, uh, so it's certainly not bulletproof uh, or even working. But it's an exciting idea, so that's been fun. And uh, also, I've been... Yeah, let's just cut it off there. That's what I've been doing this morning, and uh, it's exciting. That sounds really cool. I want to see that, the, the strange thing is, we talked last week with Evan, and he was saying, you know, server-side Elm, we want to wait until there's like a, a good coherent story for how to make that amazing. Uh, and I agree with that. But I realized as I was looking around for different tools, and I kept kind of being frustrated about what I wanted to go with on the server side, that uh, I just spend a lot of my time with Elm, and my, that's where my brain is. So it it might actually be easier for me to to engage in doing some some strange stuff to be able to use this, the language I'm comfortable with on the server, uh, specifically Elm, even though it doesn't have this great server-side story, uh, just because there's a lot of overhead to learning another framework and or another language, even if things like Elm and Haskell and PureScript are similar. So, so those are my thoughts. We'll see how they play out or if they're even valuable thoughts. So maybe I just wasted your time. We'll see. Apologize. Anyway... We've had catch-up from everyone, so let's jump over to the topic. Let's jump, and Chris, Chris is the topic this week. 
exciting. You're the whole topic, Chris. Specifically, oh we want to... What, what did you say? Oh, my God. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the length of this podcast will cover all my many neuroses. You've never been the topic before. <laughs> well... First, let's talk about the library that we wanted to talk about initially, which is remote data, which is super useful. That is uh, not the only useful thing you've done by far. <laughs> that is one of the <laughs> useful things you've contributed. So let's talk, start about talking about that, and then I want to ask you more about some of your background. And things like okay. that. So can you talk about, with remote data, what it is, how you came up with the idea, and wh you know, why it's useful? Okay, so um, really it's about something we do constantly in front-end development, which is fetching data from a remote server. And you kind of want to make sure the user gets good feedback for that, right? So yeah. you know, nearly every request you make as a user will have a delay. You kind of want some loading feedback. Um, and the worse that delay, the more you want it. So remote data kind of came out trying to model that process, first as a data type and then some supporting functions. And it just simply says every web request has this life cycle where it starts off, you haven't asked for anything. And then there's a period where it's loading. And then you either get back success or failure. It's a very simple data type. Um, that you can, if you've got a language with algebraic data types, it just drops in very, very easily. For me, it makes the whole web programming experience a lot nicer because you know, whenever you model some, crystallize the model of something really well, it makes programming it a lot easier. And this is something we're doing constantly in front-end work, just requesting stuff. So you get nice things out of it like compiler checking support. It makes it really hard to forget about putting loading messages or forgetting to format your error as well. It just the compiler's constantly badgering you to keep that user experience good. Which is awesome. And the you also mentioned that there are supporting functions. I think that's one of the most important parts of the library. Because uh, the data type's the core, but you also have done a lot of work writing functions to chain remote data types or apply them or map them, etc. And that's that makes it really easy to work with the, the data type, even though there are a number of different possibilities, number of different values that could occupy the type, right? Yes, yes. That's, um, that kind of comes from two places. One is actually using it a lot. I mean, I use it all over the place in all my own projects because all my own projects involve some kind of fetching remote data, of course. Um, and the other place that comes from is really knowing a bit of Haskell. And it, you know, people say good and bad things about category theory, but it can give you pointers towards which kinds of functions are going to be useful. It's like once you've got used to things being mappable, you start to ask of every data type, is this something I could map to? Would map be a useful function here? And then, and then, and you know, you just start to get used to seeing these patterns of functions which are going to make your data type more useful. So I'll say that I started using this library a couple of months ago when Brian Hicks pointed it out to me. And this was a very helpful library for my learning. So if you, dear listener, haven't used this library and are still learning Elm, this is a great example of modeling data with algebraic data types. Previously, I hadn't quite understood this concept that of the power of algebraic data types for your own custom data modeling. I think I had thought like, well, okay, I can model this with a maybe, or I can model this with a result, never really departing much from w what the initial data types are that are offered from Elm outside of, I'm going to define my message, right? My message was really the only algebraic data type that I was 
doing custom. And then I popped open this library and I looked at it and I, I was like, whoa, there's this single data type that represents all these different states of loading data. That's pretty cool. Like, why didn't I think of that? And then as I started to work on it, I saw the functions and said, oh, yeah, all these functions are necessary for working with the data type. And so after working with it for a couple of months, then I started to realize more cool things that could be done. So recently I was working on modeling uh, a thing for, for day one's web app and I wanted to load a page, but I needed to, to preload some assets before the page loaded. I needed to go fetch some, some data beforehand. And I wanted the model for that page that I was rendering to not have any remote data in it. I wanted the data to all be there always, to have that be a compiler guarantee that by the time the page was being rendered, the data was there. So actually I ended up using remote data as the model for that page. So I had like the model and then I had the inner model and the outer model was remote data. So oh, yeah, uh, I, I, think just, I think that's a great pattern because then after that, after you wrap it, uh, oh, okay, so here's, here's what I ended up doing is I ended up fetching the data and then inside of the view function, I could actually take the view, the inner view that expects the inner model, I could wrap it in remote data also. So I, I have a view of remote data and then I can take my other remote data, which is wrapping up the actual data, and I can just mush them together using apply or I think it's nmap. And that describes a relationship that says if the data isn't loaded, then we've got a, a non-loaded state or an error state and go ahead and render the view for that, which I can do with a generic function. Otherwise, if the data is loaded, then both the data and the view are fulfilled and they get rendered to the screen. And it worked out super well. And so you do something similar, Chris, or you do uh, the exact same thing? Uh, yeah, I do, I do pretty much the same thing you described there. And another thing I do quite often is sometimes it makes sense to have data coming from several different sources. Um, you know, like um, I might be loading data from two sources and I want to show widget A from source A and widget B from source B. But there's widget C that needs both of those data types. So you kind of want to merge two remote data things into one. And you can do that just by um, applying a function across those two types. And you kind of, it's, it's easier to show in code than uh, saying it, which is a shame for podcast. But you can just, uh, a bit like uh, the code pipeline works. You can say, here's my constructor function. Here are some things I want to wire into it. And at the end pops out this one remote data thing which says, if any of them are loading, they're all loading. If any of them have errored, then the first error wins. But if they've all succeeded, I get one data type that's succeeding. And this is a pretty general pattern in functional programming. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, if I'm allowed to mention category theory again, it's an applicable you are. functor. How many an times did I that before I get kicked off? I think that it's a <laughs> maximum of 10. Uh, no, I'm I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think these are all things that are important for, for us to learn just to help us to grow as, as developers too. So an applicative functor, keep our eyes and ears out for that. So that means that remote data is an applicative functor. Is that right? Uh, yes. Pretty much, uh, this isn't technically correct, but pretty much if you've got something that implements and then, the chances are you've got a monad, which means you've got an applicative functor and a functor. Mm -hmm. Now, don't so you need and, you can put don't you need and map? Uh, you, you can implement and map from and then and uh, okay. return. 
Okay, great. So you don't you don't actually need the data type to support that. You could implement it yourself and map on top of and then. Yeah, as long basically as long as you can do and then and you've got a way of wrapping a value up inside the thing, uh, which for remote data is you just call like success five, and that wraps a five into this data structure, right? Right. So if you've got a way of wrapping it, which is normally called return in Haskell then, and you've got and then, then you can definitely create uh, applicatives and functors from it. So you mentioned how this is like JSON decode pipeline. So, yeah. and I think there are probably quite a few people that are familiar with that. And so, if we were going to make a comparison, that would be like calling the function decode in JSON decode pipeline, which they've just named that to make kind of more sense as a DSL. That's very similar yeah. to calling success or return in Haskell, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And that just takes a function. It takes a function and it wraps it up in the data type. So, let's say uh, what in, in the JSON decode example, we would have a function that takes an A and a B and returns a C, and then if you call decode on it, then you end up with a decoder of a function that takes an A and a B and returns a C. Yeah. Is Which, that right? I, I thought, yeah, that's correct. I found that really hard to get my head around originally. It's like, what's it have a decoder of a function? No one's going to send me a JSON function. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. That is, it's just, here's this thing that's wrapped up in this context, and if you give it the argument it needs, in that context, then you can eventually spit out something that would occur to a person or whatever. And so the way that, that and map works there, which is what JSON decode pipeline is using, it's just not calling it that, is that if you have a JSON decoder of a function from A to B to C, and then you have a JSON decoder of an A and a JSON decoder of a B, you can apply both of those and end up with a JSON decoder of C. Yeah. And it, it works the same way with remote data, right? Like, exactly. just take JSON decode and, and replace it with remote data in there. Yeah. And it's, it's a really nice pattern, and once you start seeing it, it crops up in so many places. So you can also drive and map for data types that implement the map2 function. I've never and seen that one before. What does map2 do, Luke? Uh, so map2 is like if you have, for example, two lists, and you want to apply... A function over the members of, of both lists at the same time to get a list of combinations of the two sides. Right, map two. I thought you were saying map to, but you were saying map oh. the number two. Right. Yep. Like map n kind of things. Map two, map three. I noticed uh, the other day that remote data doesn't have any of the map n functions, and I would love to hear more about why you'd prefer that it didn't. And the reason for that is um, if you've got and map, then all, I mean, the, the map 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 are just uh, specific versions of this more general tool, mm -hmm. which is and map. So, I don't know, there's, there's, there's an argument for the convenience of map 2, map 3, map 4, but I prefer, but there's also an argument for teaching people that you don't need map's number you've got this useful generic tool which will do any of them. And I don't know, it's, it's a question of the trade-off between what's easier to understand now and what's going to push people to a more useful tool in the long run. And I guess I get slightly on the harder side than the usual Elm community, sort of shepherding people towards this more generic tool. Cool. It makes sense to me. Yeah, me too. So I um, want to know a little bit, Chris, what kind of a background prepared you to 
to be able to think about remote data and model it this way? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, you, you mentioned about taking a few parts of Annie Haskell. There's blood on my keyboard as we speak. Uh, old <laughs> blood stains from uh, from learning Haskell. Um, what's my background? I was a couple of two three years ago. I was doing a lot of closure and closure script, and I did some closure script for a company with a Haskell backend. I was working in the front end. They they were all Haskell on the back end, and they really impressed me. It seemed to me that they were. They were very smart guys, but what they were doing was not explained just by them being smart. They were so efficient on the back end, and their coding was so good. The speed with which they could turn around new things and change things. Just, I just thought, these guys are very smart, but they're not so smart that they should be able to get these results. Nice. And that's what interested me about Haskell. And so I basically beat my head against the keyboard and against books until I got what they've got. How long did it take you of beating your head before you were able to do something productive? Um, do you know, that's the funny thing. It didn't take me that long before I was able to do something productive. And the, this is the weird thing about Haskell, right? You, you can, if you're writing JavaScript, you can feel like a JavaScript expert and it still breaks. And some yeah. days, if you're writing Haskell, you can feel like a moron, but if it compiles, it still works. <laughs> you know? That's a great um, point. So I was productive in Haskell long before I thought I was actually getting to grips with it. So that's interesting, and I actually want to take a moment. I hope this isn't digressing too much from the Elm podcast, but this happened to me last night. I got the Haskell depressions last night, which has happened to me many times as I've tried to, to learn it. And this usually happens because I'm reading about something I want to do or some library, and I go to read about it, and they're like, three language extensions that are at the top that I don't know what they do. And then I go down to read, and there are immediately these symbols that I have absolutely no idea what they mean. Like like a colon and a less than symbol in a type constructor. And I'm like, my mind is blown. I had no idea. Like I have no idea what's going on here. And then I, I like try to go figure out what it is, and you can't Google for the symbol. And you, I go search Google, and I can't find it on Google, and I can't find it on the docs anywhere. And then I just give up, and I go to bed, and I cry, basically. <laughs> is, is there a way around that? <laughs> or is that no, no, just that's how the way it you learn Haskell. That's exactly how you Oh, okay. Learn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it can really help to uh, have someone that knows it better. More than any other language, I think it can help to have someone on board you. So, um, so Haskell might be like a mentor-based language if you're going to I think to it really helps because it there are so, it's a combination of there being so many concepts you don't get in other programming languages. There's so much that's unfamiliar. If, if you know Java and JavaScript and you go to learn Python, you're not going to have to learn too much new stuff, right? But if you go to learn Haskell, there's a lot of new ideas in there, particularly if it's your first functional programming language. So I think it can help to have someone sort of guide you along. So I think that's where Elm is pretty amazing because as I was, over the past couple of years, as I've been struggling to get even the basics of Haskell in my brain, Elm just kind of slips right in there. Like it's, it's really good at introducing itself to new people. Uh, but, but I thought that having learned Elm would prepare the minds to be able to dive right in and get Haskell, but I guess it's still hard. Because it's a, it's a huge language. Yeah, yeah. Um, these days, if anyone asks me how to learn Haskell, I say, well, try Elm first, and it will help 
smooth out that learning curve. Nice. But at the same time, you know, I'm, fundamentally, I think of myself as a Vim user. I don't care about how hard the learning curve is as long as it works in the end. Okay, as long, yeah. as, as, long as it's more productive in the end, right? Makes sense, yeah. So then, how long have you been doing, or had you been doing Haskell before you did Elm, or were they kind of simultaneous? Um, I guess it was about 18 months of Haskell first. Okay. Maybe a bit less, yeah. But that's not to give you the impression it was 18 production months where I was a wizard. So, you know, uh, right. slapping together monads and seeing what works. You know, that, you know that meme of that dog at the keyboard saying, what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. It's like that, but it still ran. With his paws just just flamming around on the keyboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And eventually the compiler messages would go away and somehow it worked. <laughs> so then, do you think that, uh, were there any particular libraries or projects that, that kind of taught you these design patterns enough so that when you were started to, to do stuff in Elm, you thought, oh, hey, wait, I can just like make my own applicative functor here that's going to be useful. Um, I think I revisited Learn You and Haskell several times. Okay. And I got something that's more from it That's a book for those time. who don't know. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's freely available. Go and take a look. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'd read some of that and then I'd try and build something useful. And then I'd come back and I'd gradually kind of almost walk over these tracks until they actually formed paths in my mind about what this thing was and why it was useful. So what, uh, I'm, I'm trying to decide how much I want to go into these interesting questions, but did you ever have an inkling while you were doing this to say like, well, you know, Haskell's cool but hard. Maybe I should look into OCaml or maybe I should look into Elixir or maybe I should look into Scala or Language X. Or did you just always say, they were amazing with Haskell, I'm going to learn it. Um, some of the languages on your list I'd seen, but there have been reasons why I didn't particularly want to look into them. Um, but certainly it was working with that company where Haskell was totally working for them. It was just so compelling. I think I've never seen as efficient a tech team. I really hadn't. And I knew it wasn't just because they were smart. Because they were smart guys. It wasn't just that. Do you have to be smart? in order to work with Elm and Haskell. You have to be patient. <laughs> good, I like that. Nice. That's good. I can do that. <laughs> I don't know if smartness can be gained, but patience can be, so that's important. I mean, they weren't, they weren't super geniuses. They were just, I mean, you know, you meet a lot of intelligent people in the programming community, and they were there. Yeah. So then you started learning that, and you picked up Elm. Tell us how you got in contact with Elm. How did you first learn about it, and at what point did you think, this is something that's promising? Um, I had been... So I've been doing a lot of script work in the front end. Uh, and that, that was most of my contracting work was front end stuff, because there is a real need for better solutions out there. Okay. And were you using script and Ohm kind of thing? No, I was, I was mostly using script at the time. I... I started looking at Elm, um, and I've been trying to boil down ClojureScript into sort of an FRP-ish framework, just okay. through building these different sites. I kind of got to, together a way of working that made sense to me, um, and a way of thinking about data flows. And then I started to look at Elm and thought, uh, this is actually very similar. He's arrived at 
a similar place but has taken it further. And he's got static typing, which is not the end all and be all, but it is a very nice thing if it's done well. Yeah. And I carried on like that for a while, learning to mount the still doing ClojureScript, and eventually I reached the point where I thought, do you know, these two approaches are looking very, very similar now, except one of them, everything's checked at compiler. That's when it started to become my default choice. So then this was at version what with Elm? 15? 16? 15. Yeah, 15. 15. So you still had to dive in and use mailboxes and signals and all of the FRP yeah. jazz. And I was never drawn to it for the FRP. I was more drawn to it for the functional. I mean, the, the fact that uh, update was a pure function seemed to me a sign that they were on the right track. When the big update happened and FRP got nuked and the current approach was introduced, was that kind of disappointing to you? Or were you like, oh, great, this clears stuff up even more? So The 16 startup got introduced. And that seemed like a, a very sensible move for me. So I moved everything over to using that. And then if you were on the startup when 17 came in, it wasn't that big a deal. So you didn't feel, did you feel distressed at all at the loss of signals in the language? No, no, to be honest, I was glad to see them go. Really? Um, Why was yeah. that? Well, it's just, it bothered me for a while that uh, functions took an address and returned HTML. It seemed to me there was something... There was something about events that should be encoded in the HTML type. Interesting. The, the, you, know, the, the, you can't get away from the fact that in the DOM, rendering and um, message generation, if you like, are intimately woven together. Yeah. One's not very useful without the other. Yeah. So when HTML got parameterized by message, I thought, yeah, this, this is a much more sensible model of what should be going on. That's excellent. So have you been able to ever teach this to other people? Is that something you regularly do? Um, usually I teach people that know functional programming or people that have already looked into a bit of Elm and want some help on boarding. Okay. Um, and it generally goes very well. Um, I haven't done any here's your first functional programming language thing in Elm. I've done some in Clojure, okay. but not in Elm. Okay. But I, think it w I think it would be... I mean, I've done it in Clojure, and I think Clojure is a bit harder to get to grips with to begin with. Because there's no compiler? I think partly because the feedback when things go wrong isn't nearly as good. And Elm's world class there, so I mean, almost no one can compete with that. Certainly, yeah, I agree there. You've given some pretty interesting talks about interop between Elm and Haskell, and you've also written some interesting projects where your Haskell code generates Elm types. Can you talk to us a little bit about those things? Oh, yeah, so um, that's uh, Elm export which is a Haskell library I wrote, principally for one large project I have where it was a Haskell backend and an Elm frontend. And it seemed like half of my problems were coming from the fact that the two types didn't agree. You know, I'd make a change on the backend to get to make it on the front. But it's like, oh, this is blowing up at runtime. That's not supposed to happen anymore. Yeah. Um, so I started trying to find a way of generating one from the other. And scrabbled around for a while and eventually found this sort of reflection mechanism in Haskell. I won't dive too deep into the gory details of it, but there's kind of a way of saying, if you give me any data type, I can give you the definition for it. Okay. So, uh, what would be a good example? To translate into um, Elm World, let's say you had a message type that had submit or 
set name that took a string, right? That data type. Yeah. So um, this library, this reflection e mechanism in Haskell would let you say, there is a thing, there's a data type called message, and it has two constructors. The first one has the name submit and no arguments. The second one has the name set name, and it takes a string as an argument. Interesting. So you get and the you description of each data type, so you can walk over it and spit out anything you like. Wow. And in my case, and I wanted to spit out Elm, Elm source code and Elm decoder source code. Is that a, something that's built into the language, or did you find a library that allowed you to do that? It's, I think I'm right in saying it's a library that ships with GHC. Okay. So it's, it's a core library, but it's not... Was it... When you started thinking about that, was that something that was pretty obvious to find, or did you have to like dig into the dark, dark corners of the internet to, um, to see where that? Yeah, was? I, I didn't even know which were the right terms to search for. Um, and when I actually found it, it was way beyond my level of Haskell. It was okay. Totally, you know, went over my head the first few times I tried it. But and you, how did you ultimately do it? Uh, usual Haskell method: keep bashing your head against the keyboard till. The blood seeps into the circuitry. Okay. It's all right. It, it's, like, it's like getting a black belt in karate. It's like it turns yeah. black just from your sweat and blood. and. Dirt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are easier ways to learn Haskell that I'm missing, but um, <laughs> persistence, persistence does so much for you in programming. Okay. So you, so you just brute forced it, basically, to get that working yeah. out. I mean, I... For things like this where I struggle to understand it the first time, I just keep coming back to it. And on the third or fourth path, something clicks. And then I'm guessing you had a serious party once it actually happened. Once yeah, you figured I, it I out. invited everyone I know, and they all thought it was a bit too geeky to come, so I parted them all. <laughs> and then Good. Maybe with your dog. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I have cool. a dog allergy. Even my dog wouldn't come. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, solitary Haskell party, that's okay. That's, yeah, sometimes yeah that's we have those happen. daily over here. <laughs> so then tell me a little bit about the ops situation here. When you're going to be working on a Haskell backend and then using that to generate your Elm types and then working on your Elm stuff on the front end, obviously you've got to have some process running in the background, right, that like every time you modify your Haskell file, your types are generated in Elm so you don't end up with runtime errors. Is it, or is it something like that? Can I make a terrible confession now? Please do. I, I could do that, but I haven't got around to it. You just so, switch over um, to the terminal and run the command the, again. The Haskell process that runs web server has another flag which says generate Elm type. And I just run that whenever I need to. Oh, that's interesting. So you actually just added that as a flag. And yeah. so it will run Elm make from within the server. The server will spit oh. out the data. And then I've just got like a build process that says, compile the Haskell, run this command from it, and then run Elm make. But it's done manually. It's not sense. like continuous integration or anything at the moment. That's not a terrible confession. That's probably pragmatism. Yeah, if there were more people working on it, well, then I probably would worry about continuous integration for it. As it stands, it's fine. So what kind of adoption have you heard about of both your the Elm Haskell type generation library and of remote data? Um, 
all grapevine. It's very hard to find out who's using what. You know, you can look at GitHub stars as some kind of measure, but other than that, um, there seems to be a lot more noise about remote data. A lot of people okay. get, in, get in touch with me to say they like it, which is very flattering. And there have been a couple of ports, I think. I think someone ported it to JavaScript, and I thought I heard something of a pure, a pure script port. So, and that's very flattering. I've had a couple of libraries like that before, um, where the nicest thing is to see it ported to another language. Because then you know you've not just written yeah. code, you've got an idea. An idea that other people value and want to take with them. Yeah. Not pay you for, but take. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you get to feel famous if they accredit you. Yeah. If they yeah. accredit you and if they don't. Then yeah, they, yeah. So that kind of leads to the next question. Are there any other libraries or tools that you've written that you feel like don't have much visibility that could be useful to people um, that they haven't seen? That's an interesting one. Um, there are a couple of small things. Um, oh, the other one um, that I genuinely am I'm quite proud of, but I don't think is used much, is formatting, which is like a printf function. Style. Yeah, I've seen that one. Uh, that's, um, so it's a type-safe printf. If you want to build up formatting strings. And the nice thing about that is it it kind of gives you the string interpolation that you want, but it doesn't need any core language changes, and it's type safe. Wow. So you can write And how did you... Then, sorry. I was just going to ask, how did you come up with the library, the uh, the API for that? That one does come directly from Haskell, basically. Um, there is a library in Haskell, I think it's also called Formatting. It's by Chris Dunn. And it's really nice, and I use it a lot. And then when Evan and Noah released URL parser, I realized that you could port exactly the same code across. I thought it might be one of those things where it only worked in Haskell and Elm couldn't support it. But then when I saw URL parser, I realized that you could port it across. So it's um, using some of the same approaches. Your yeah. library is using some of the same approaches as URL parser. Yes, yeah, yeah, under the hood. Which is the, uh, how techy do we want to get about it? It kind of builds up a continuation of which arguments it will want. Okay. Uh, um, oh, you could do a whole talk about it just on the internals Actually, of it because it's really interesting. Let's take a few seconds and see if you can give us a an elementary school definition of a continuation. Um, it's. Can I give you a good one without lighting the internet trying to give a better one on the fly? So a continuation is. Uh, I'm going, you're going to compute something for me, and I'm going to give you a function. And when you finish doing your computation, pass it to that function. Okay. So I don't want you to give the result. I don't want you to give back the result to me. I'm going to give you a function. Give the result to that. Is that somewhat similar in concept to a callback from JavaScript? Yeah. Because what you're doing is you're calling some, you're running some subroutine and you're giving it a function to call when it's finished, whether that function is complete or partially applied. The difference, I suppose, technically would be who gets control flow. Okay. Because with, with strictly with the continuation, the, the caller doesn't get control flow back. So I call you with this, with this in JavaScript, I give you a callback. You take the callback and then control flow returns to me. Okay. I don't think that's... Uh, I need to check. I feel like I'm committing to a recording thing that may not be technically correct. And then I... <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. 
you can you can give a uh, caveat that says this hand was wavy, not hand prepared wavy, for. Hand wavy. Yeah. yeah, it just works, TM. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so that's super cool. I think we're almost reaching uh, time for picks and wrap up and stuff. So Chris, why don't you, why don't you let us know? Is there anything we missed talking about that you'd be interested in in mentioning here before we? Do? Um, this is your platform, your Apple Box. Oh, what should I do? Um, uh, those are the really good ones. I put together um, an A Start package, which is quite fun. Um, I was doing a, a game in Elm where I needed to do pathfinding across a grid. And as your character is at the top left of the grid, you click down at the bottom right and he needs to walk around the obstacle. Okay. So that's just that's a classic computer science, actual computer science algorithm called A Star. A star. Yes, it's a star library. A a and then the asterisk. Yeah, so, um, and you can. Uh, it's a nice little algorithm. It's good to do in a hackline, and we have done it in our hackline. It just computes the shortest path between A and B, potentially given obstacles in the way. If you ever wanted to do something like Monkey Island, that's the algorithm you reach for. Oh, nice. Um, and I packaged that up as an Elm package. So if you're making any point-and-click games in Elm, you might want to look at that. We'll certainly link to that library. <laughs> any uh, controversial topics you want to push your opinion on? Um, oh, I quite like lenses. <laughs> Ooh, that is controversial. It is, yeah. <laughs> Luke, feel free to jump in if you've got something to say here, too. Oh, I just I had a question about like the future of, of remote data. Oh. Okay. Um, Say it, and then we'll come back to lenses so that we don't uh, so that we don't avoid the controversy. Got it. Cool. Um, well, just it's pretty quick. So HTTP in zero dot eighteen introduces the the progress uh, module. Yes. Yeah. So are are you thinking of adding like a a variant of remote data that has a, a typed loading constructor? Possibly. Um... I'm still wondering where I stand on progress. I'm hoping it's going to keep evolving, put it that way. This is a controversial topic in itself. So the problem with the progress library, uh, the great thing is it's really nice to see it come back. The problem with it is it assumes that um, you'll only want to have kind of progress tracking for requests that take a long time to download data. And that doesn't really model what happens on the internet because um, for most of the requests we make that are slow enough to want progress tracking, you'll often find that uh, you ask this data, it goes, it goes across the Atlantic to the server on the far side of the world, which takes half a second. The server processes it, sends back some data, another half second. So the user's waiting for a visible second there, but the data is only you know, half a kilobyte, so it all arrives at once. If you do that with the new HTTP progress library, you'll find that nothing happens, and then suddenly it goes from zero to 100%. Right. Because it's using the underlying browser progress monitoring, which assumes that the only interesting progress is from the first byte arriving at you to the last byte, which isn't the case. Most of your delay is in waiting for the first byte to arrive. Makes sense to me. So you think that like maybe... Uh Building a user experience around that first byte to, to last byte timing is kind of misleading? 
Um, well, it only applies when that is the significant delay, which is, is true for file uploads and file downloads, that kind of thing, but not for the vast majority of requests where we would like to track the time it takes. Do we have any tools to kind of pr report progress on just the time to first byte? That's just kind of all async, right? Yeah, there, I don't think there's any way to track it predictively. You know, before that first yeah. byte arrives, you have no idea how long it's going to take. Right. But you still want to give feedback to the user that something is going on. It would be interesting if we had more information about, like, packet sent and handshake made or something like that. I don't know, steps along the way. Yeah, or at least, I mean, my ideal progress library would be so easy to use that you would use it for every single request. And you would automatically get an I started message come through to your update function. You know, if it was easy to use and you had that on every function, then you, on every call, then you would have loading feedback messages for everything. And you could optionally choose to show them to the user. That would be really nice. That would be neat. That would be neat. And I think that Luke has successfully helped us avoid the controversy because we're running out of time. So, Chris, maybe you should come back when we do an episode on lenses and talk about them then, too. I would love to. Why don't we get someone that hates them, and I'll be on the other side. Great idea. Well, maybe okay. we'll do a couple episodes because I've got one where we have some people who love them. And so maybe we'll do, like, lenses, everyone who loves it, and then lenses, fight it out, and I'll just watch and see how it goes down. Sounds good. So let's move on to picks. Uh, and, Chris, we'll start with you. Um, so my first one, I'm going to go for the album by Dr. Octorock called 8-Bit Jesus. This is a selection of Christmas carols done in the style of the Super Nintendo. Sounds pretty amazing. It's awesome. And that's... It's can you listen to it online? Uh, you, I, you can get it on Spotify. I think you can stream it. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, listen to the full album before you buy it. There's a web page. So, um, there we go. That's great. I pull that out every Christmas these days. Festive if you, if you grew up with those stuff. sorts of consoles, it's just brilliant. Especially good with the new release of the uh, NES Classic, which nobody has. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> nobody can get it yet. Except for those who are willing to pay through the nose. <gasps> That's awesome. That Do you have more picks? Uh, yeah, my next one has got to be Monocle, which is a lens library for Elm. It's the best one I've found. I think and, uh, that's the one we're going to do the show on. I'll give you a quick reason to use it. If you find you have a lot of places in an update function where you say, I've got this key, I'm going to look it up in a dictionary, and if it exists, I'll update the value and then restore it back in the dictionary. But if it doesn't, I'll just return model, comma, command none. If you find yourself oh. doing that, then you will like monocle.prism. Very nice. Um, and my third pick has got to be Cloud Haskell, because I'm playing with that this week. It's, it's Haskell trying to be Erlang. Oh, wow. Um, so does it have... Is it message passing or it's message kind of the passing actor, actor model? You can just go and spawn a remote process. Also, you can do like uh, typed message passing, so you can have compile okay. time checks that you're passing the right kinds of messages around. Interesting. So yeah, really interesting. 
that actually sounds like an advantage over the Scala Akka's stuff, because I think that once you start passing messages around, don't they become untyped at that point? They do. I don't actually know. Okay. Which, it always seemed odd to me that Scala's sort of flagship product was uh, dynamically typed. Yeah, that is interesting. So Haskell's trying to do that from a, a statically typed point of view. Yes, yeah. It, it also does the dynamically typed alternative, but I okay. spent much time looking at that. I just thought, why would I throw away that check if I can get it? Certainly. Well, very cool. Did you say you had four picks or three? Um, oh, the other one is response, which I use in everything, which just makes handling update functions a bit easier. I would really look at that if you're doing any own work. I really like it. I'll have to take a look at that, too. Sounds super cool. So, okay, that's awesome. Four picks. Luke, you got some picks? Yeah, I have a couple picks. So my first pick is a function from Elm CSS. It's a css.file.compiler. And what this does is it takes, a, uh, it takes an outgoing port and the, the data from your Elm CSS um, like style sheets that you've built up, and it creates a program type that you can pass to main. And the reason I like this and I want to pick it is because it's making use of platform.program now that we have that in 0.18. And uh, I think this is like a great example of how command line tools that are built with Elm can uh, make it really easy to set up the moving parts that you need to expose your kind of custom Elm behavior to the outside world. And this is a feature that I wanted in Elm CSS a while ago, but it would have required introducing like a dependency on virtual DOM and having this fake view that just rendered an empty text node and was never actually called. So it's cool that we can have it now that platform.program is part of the, the language, the, the platform. Yes. Awesome. Way to find that too. That's cool that you, that you went in there and found the specific line of code. Nice. Yeah. Well, I like, uh, I really like when, when like functions and things in, in code made me just like, as I'm sitting by myself, go like, oh man, that's cool. Like under my breath. So, so do you just read through code when you're sitting around Luke? So yes, but I wasn't actually doing that this time. I was setting up a, a project with Elm CSS when I noticed oh, okay. this. I just wondered if that's a thing that other developers do regularly that I should be doing more. Because I like to read books and stuff, but I mean, maybe I should just be printing off the source code for cool libraries <laughs> and just like go to the bathroom and read through some source code. It's a good idea. I do love to read other people's code. Is that something that you've acquired, that love, or is that a love that's internal to your heart? I don't know if it's either. Um, I think it's just something I noticed that I like to do. Uh, the first time I did it was when I read like the annotated source for Backbone um, a number of years wow. ago. Wow. And I've been doing it ever since. Chris, what about you? Uh, not nearly enough. Um, I like to read other people's data types. Oh. I feel that orients me very quickly. That's like the Cliff Notes version of reading other people's code. Yeah, absolutely. It tells you what world you're in, even if it doesn't tell you the plot. Makes sense. Okay, Luke, did you have more picks? Yeah. Um, so my next pick is the work that my friend Rizwan Javed does to evangelize sketching for developers. So I have linked um, a seminar that he did teaching developers the, the value of sketching their ideas. And I also have a link to his Twitter so people can follow him. 
Is that sketching as in pencil on paper sketching? Uh, always pen. He's uh, oh. That's one of his main points is use pen and don't worry about making mistakes. Never erase. You know, uh, actually, I think that's funny. I feel like there's an analogy there to Elm because when you're writing Elm, always use a pen. Just go forward and do what seems to be the right thing right now, and the compiler will help you fix it later. If there's a problem. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Elm is like programming with a pen. <laughs> sure is. That sounds cool. Uh, yeah. And you had another one? Yes. So my last pick is Jen Schiffer's talk at XOXO Festival. And it's just kind of her story as a developer and somebody who creates art with, with code and who writes satire about front-end development and kind of her experiences with that. And it's a really funny talk, and it's like really personal and, and heartfelt and really good, so I don't want to say more about it. I just recommend that everybody go watch it. That's so good. Thanks for sharing those, Luke. I've got four picks, and none of them are related to Elmore programming at all. They're all related to Christmas and Christmas gifts. And I'm going to try to be quiet enough that my family won't overhear any surprises that they're going to see at Christmas. So the first one is not a surprise. There's this album we really like to listen to from the Piano Guys, and it's called A Family Christmas Album. And it's just uh, the Piano Guys are a YouTube channel, and they do all this fantastic work uh, arranging music between piano and cello, and they'll go all over the world and do cool things. But there's a Christmas album that they made that's just beautiful arrangements of piano and cello together, and I love it. Uh, family loves it too. Next, if you have someone who loves to work in the kitchen, uh, my wife just loves to work in the kitchen and she does amazing work and I love that she loves to work in the kitchen. My mouth particularly loves it. But there's this amazing spatula called Get It Right. It's uh, I'll link to it on Amazon. Get It Right Premium Silicone Ultimate Spatula. We got one last year for Christmas and it's been pretty amazing. It, it's like heat resilient up to like a billion degrees or something like that. They come in bright, happy colors, and they're a nice aesthetic shape, and they just they don't get damaged, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't leak weird stuff into your food. Um, so, at least I hope. And those are really fun. So I'm going to link to that, too. Do you know, we've got one of those. They don't call it that over here, but we've got exactly that spatula, and we call it the spatula of tomorrow. That's what it's called? Uh, in our household, that's what it's called, the spatula of tomorrow. Because that's a way cooler name than the Get It Right Premium Silicone Spatula. <laughs> I should go into my So you thing. love it? Yeah, it's great. It's brilliant. And it's bright pink, which is crazy. Awesome. Awesome. Second pick on that pick. That's a pick that was picked twice. And then I'm going to pick a Studio Ghibli movie. I love Studio Ghibli. Almost everything they do, I just love. And the ones that I haven't seen, I mean, I don't know if I love those, but I'm betting I probably do. There's a particular movie that was made and released pretty recently called When Marnie Was There, and my wife and I loved it. And so I'm actually getting that as a Christmas gift for my mother, but that is a wonderful movie. If you're up for some good, heartfelt movie watching and some excellent animation, When Marnie Was There is a great way to do that. And then last but not least, here's here's the last gift. This is one where I have to be quiet because... It's another kitchen gift, and I haven't told my wife about it, but there's a website called flirtyaprons.com, and I'm hoping this will be a good present, but it has aprons for normal human-sized aprons, like parent-sized aprons, and then child-sized aprons. So if you have child or children in your house who like to hang out with you, and you like to hang out in the kitchen and cook stuff, it could be pretty darn cute to get matching aprons and make, uh, make the family feel unified. 
So that's my last pick is matching aprons from flirty aprons for, for mom and daughter or uh, dad and son or whomever. And that's it. That's Those are all of the picks that I have. Uh, anyone have final wrapping up comments? Last chance. Sounds like a nope. So what we're going to say is thank you everyone for listening and giving us an hour of your day and hugs to everyone and goodbye. Bye everyone. Bye. Say bye Chris. Bye. bye. bye.